Buckle up, yes. I think half the church went to Brazil. No, vacations are coming. People are gathering and around campfires and everything. And I just want to encourage you in that moment, guys, that, man, it's all about being Jesus. Use these moments, the fun and the sun and the wonderful skies and stuff above us. Use it as, an, as a backdrop for sharing Jesus with others. Amen? Be mindful of that. Of Wherever you put your foot, you're taking the kingdom of God with you. So make proclamations, make declarations, lay hands on the sick, do it in all kinds of other settings. That's what I love about summer. It's kind of like, let's just release what God is doing everywhere we go. My wife and I are taking off for, gosh, 17 days, and uh, we're going on a 2,200-mile trip, which we're pretty excited about. Uh, it's been a long time since we've gone and done anything like that, but it's just uh, going to be a good time. We know this. Although we both caught a cold, my wife's, I'm almost completely over it, but she's home. I just said, stay home, get your energy back, and if we have to put you in the truck and you go down the road with a box of Kleenex in your nose, you're good. You'll be okay, sweetheart. We'll make it. So, but uh, while we're gone, if you have any questions, if you have any needs, please contact the elders, Greg and Teresa Dahl. You can contact them if it's something really super technical. Uh, Linda Wright's also available. Uh, some of the other elders, Clyde, and he's gone, and Max is going to be taken off. So it's going to be hit and miss, but you can still call the church. You can get a hold of these people if you have questions, okay? So don't think there's no one available because there is. There's a lot of people. And Greg and Teresa are wonderful, have huge pastoral hearts, and they can certainly help you with anything that you need help with. Amen? Okay, I'm done. I'm going to go home now. No. <laughs> 17 days. 17 days. Maybe longer. I don't know. We'll just, wherever the wind blows us, we'll go. Wherever the Holy Spirit takes, no. Turn with me to 2 Kings chapter 6. I'm going to revisit a story that many of us grew up hearing in Sunday school. We probably have heard this many times over the years, but I want to look at it from a a whole different perspective, I think, of something that God's been speaking to my heart. And let me ask you a question. How many of you have ever seen those hidden 3D stereogram illusions kind of things? You, you're looking at it, it looks like a, just a bunch of pixelated stuff. You look at it and you stare at it. And if you lift your left leg, turn your head right, hold your breath for 30 seconds, cross your eyes seven times, all of a sudden that eagle pops out. How many, how many know those? They're kind of trippy. <clears throat> Some people simply cannot see them, but a lot of people can if you, if you learn how to just look at it and you relax, and all of a sudden you see something that's behind the imagery that's facing you. Years ago, um, we had a hike up to a mine my uncle wanted to take us up to. It was called the Yellowhorn Mine. still is. I think it's uh, abandoned now. Uh, but we were going to hike up there, and I remember there was a trail. We had to go through some pretty deep blackberries and the animals had gone through there, so you kind of were stepping like this through the blackberries, kind of uphill. And I was the first one through, and I got up on this kind of a ledge, and I'm looking down, and my uncle starts through, and he puts his foot down, and what caught my eye was this big old rattlesnake right under his foot. Now, it was kind of in the fall, so it's right when the snakes are just like, they're not super, you know, they're reptiles, and they're not really moving that fast. It didn't rattle, didn't make a sound, and he had his foot on, I said, stop. And he goes, what? I said, you're standing on a rattlesnake. And he goes, no, I'm not. 
I, yes, you are. No, I'm not. Yes, you are. But he didn't lift his foot up. And he's looking. He goes, I don't see anything. <clears throat> I said, it's there. He goes, I don't see it. It's there. And finally, he saw <clears throat> the snake. He had his foot right on its head. And he saw its tail kind of withering. But there's blackberries. It's kind of all entangled. And he looks up at me like, what do I do? <clears throat> now, my uncle was a big guy, and I had, I, I, nothing could describe the imagery of him leaping 300 feet. No, not really. <laughs> but he leapt away from that snake. Of course, the snake was still like trying to figure out what's going on. And there was like eight other people behind them. That old rule of thumb, the second person gets bit, that's pretty true. And we learned how to walk. I grew up in the Mojave Desert. We learned how to walk through rocks and stuff, and you'd kick the rocks as you went. So you would make noise and it would stir up. If there was a snake, they would sound off. But going through the blackberries and stuff, it was cold enough, the snake wasn't doing anything. So anyhow, the snake took a pretty good pummel in and, and then the rest of the people made it through. But I remember asking him later, I said, how come you didn't see it? And he stopped for a moment. He said, probably because I didn't want to. Yeah. Think about that for a moment. Yeah, I didn't want to see it. But when he saw it, he reacted, <clears throat> and he got away from it. So let's read 2 Kings chapter 6. We'll see how long I can hold up here. <clears throat> it says, Now the king of Aram was at war with Israel. After conferring with his officers, he said, I will set up my camp in such and such a place. So he's having war talk in his war room, tent, wherever that was, and he's telling his men, this is where I'm going to be. This is, this is my strategy. This is where it's happening. Then the man of God, the man of God, Elisha, sent word to the king of Israel, beware of the passing that place because the Arameans are going down there. So the king of Israel checked in, <clears throat> checked on the place indicated by the man of God. Time and time again, Elisha warned the king so that he was on his guard in such places. Wow. So here's this king of Aram giving his directions to his men. This is where we're going to be. This is what we're going to do. But Elisha the whole time is privy to all this information supernaturally. God revealed it to him. And then he would pass that information on to the king of Israel. This enraged the king of Aram. Can you imagine that? First thing you'd wonder is who's, where's the leak? Who's talking? He summoned his officers and demanded it of them. Tell me. Which of us is on the side of the king of Israel? Which one of you? You imagine how livid he was? He was upset. None of us, my lords, <clears throat> the king said one of his officers, but Elisha the prophet, who is in Israel, tells the king of Israel the very word you speak in your bedroom. Whoa. <clears throat> Go find out where he is. The king ordered, so I can send men and capture him. The report came back. He is in Dothan. Then he sent horses and chariots and a strong force there. They went by night and surrounded the city. So the king of Aram sends this mighty army to go surround Dothan and there all the way around. It had to have been a huge group of people. Chariots and horses and weapons with sharp spears and bazookas and cannons. Not literally, but... <clears throat> now this is where it starts getting really interesting. It says, when the servant of the man, that's Elisha's servant, 
got up and went out early in the morning. An army with horses and chariots had surrounded the city. Can you imagine what must have been going on in his heart? He goes out. I don't know if he steps out on the balcony. Obviously, he has a pretty good panoramic view of what's going on. And he sees all this huge army of men, of chariots. Chariots is like tanks in those days. It was a huge group surrounding the city. What would your response be if you woke up and saw that? Probably the same as his, because he says, Oh no, my Lord, what shall we do? The servant asked Elisha. This is what we're going to dig into for a little bit. Elisha's response to what the servant saw. He says, Don't be afraid, the prophet answered. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Uh, okay, all right, <clears throat> it's not what I'm seeing, but if that's what you say, okay, I'm just paraphrasing, that's my own language here, and Elijah prayed, open his eyes, Lord, so that he may see, then the Lord opened the servant's eyes, and he looked and he saw the hills full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elijah, all around the entire city. Above the army that was there was a mass amount. I don't know if you've ever seen that movie, Quigley Down Under. There's a scene towards the end where all the native aboriginal people are standing on the mountaintops. They had to have gotten it and been inspired by this particular story because all of a sudden they just saw what was with them was greater than these few cowboys that were there. <clears throat> so I want to break this down real quick. First of all, Elisha's response, or his servant's response is, alas, alas, my master, or oh no, my Lord, what shall we do? Now notice here, when Elijah's servant saw the horses, he saw the chariots, he saw the great army surrounding their city, he was naturally afraid. Who wouldn't be? Who wouldn't be afraid? <clears throat> he knew that there was a little chance of escaping. He knew that their, that their chance of surviving this attack was going to be very, very slim. But yet... Elisha says something. He says, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Do not fear. For those who are with us, think about this, are more than those who are with them. This had to have seemed unbelievable to Elisha's servant. It had to have. He saw the, he saw the chariots. He saw the horses. He saw the sharp weapons. He saw the great army surrounding them. He could not see anyone who was with them that Elijah was talking about. He couldn't see them. Then notice in verse 16. Verse 16, Elijah gives his servant a reason to not fear. This wasn't some empty hope. It wasn't some kind of wishful thinking. It was a real reason for confidence. Even if the servant couldn't see it with his natural eyes. And Elisha does what? He simply prays. He says, Lord, I pray, open his eyes that he may see. This to me is where it gets really, really interesting. Because Elisha didn't pray, God, would you come and change this situation? His only request was that his servant could see, could actually see the reality of the situation like Elisha saw it. That's what he prayed. He simply prayed. Open his eyes 
that he may see. Many times we encounter people that just have no clue as to what we're sharing with them. They draw a blank stare. <clears throat> it's because their eyes have not been opened to see what God has revealed to us. Amen? Also, Elisha did not try to persuade the servant of the reality of that saying, those who are with us. He didn't try to persuade him. He didn't say, look, you know, if you would have been reading what I told you to read, you would see him. If you had been digging a little deeper, praying a little harder, being a little more holier, being a little more spiritual, then, then you would probably see. He didn't say that at all, did he? Not at all. And I think the biggest reason for that is Elijah, the servant, he could not have had this explained to him, nor could have he been persuaded into it. He had to see it for himself. And I love this because then the Lord, after Elijah prays, Lord, open his eyes. What happens? God answers Elijah's prayer, and the servant's eyes are open. And he saw what Elijah was talking about. Can you imagine that moment when all of a sudden, the veil is removed and all of a sudden your eyes are open and you see that there are more with us than are against us. What a moment. What a confident booster that was. <clears throat> you know, when a person is blinded spiritually, only God can open their eyes. We can speak and talk and do all kinds of... Now, God may minister to them and open their eyes up through uh, who's someone who's speaking or sharing, but the work of spiritually opening someone's eyes is the work of God and God alone. And you know what the servant saw? It says right here, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elijah. To me, this is really, really powerful. I shared with you last week how I was... Um, giving Molly a break, and I went into the preschool room. I don't go in there very often, but they were all asleep, so it's easy duty. The kids had nap time, <clears throat> so I'm just standing there. Molly went and ran an errand, and I'm, I'm standing there, and all of a sudden it hit me. It's like I saw something behind the reality of just kids sleeping. I saw that laying right there on the floor, sleeping like little angelic beings, was the world changers of tomorrow. They're here with us today. Yeah. And I work with kids. I've worked with kids for over 35 years. And I'll tell you, that was such a revelatory moment for me. I mean, I've, I've, I've prayed with kids. I've been with kids who have lost family members and cried and broken, wounded. And that was such a powerful moment for me. It just, God just said, these are the world changers of tomorrow. And they're here now. You ever had a moment like that when God shows you something deeper? God shows you something behind the reality that you're in. I love those moments. I wrote here, when his eyes were opened, the servant saw the reality that he could not see before. He saw the reality <clears throat> that there really were more with him and Elijah than those assembled against us, against them. But here's, here's a critical point. Notice, notice the previous lack of perception of Elijah's servant did not make the reality of this spiritual army any less real. And this is where it gets interesting to me because if there are 50 people who do not see something, it doesn't invalidate the perception of the one who does see. It doesn't. Charles Spurgeon, 
<clears throat> I don't know if any of you have ever read his sermons. Uh, he wrote a sermon called Three Sights Worth Seeing. And in there he makes this note. That you have not perceived spiritual things is true, but it is no proof that there are none to perceive. The whole case is like that of the Irishman who tried to upset evidence with non-evidence. Four witnesses saw him commit a murder. He pleaded that he was not guilty and wished to establish his innocence by producing 40 persons who did not see him do it. <clears throat> he goes on to say, if, of what use would that have been? So, if 40 people declare there is no power of the Holy Ghost <clears throat> going with the word, this only proves that 40 people do not know what others do know. So this whole concept of, there's a song we sing, open the eyes of my heart, Lord. What does that really mean? Open the eyes of my heart. Without a doubt, we are living in probably some of the most unprecedented times. In light of this fact, there are many people who are unsettled. In fact, they're even fearful. We see social and political upheaval just running rampant. And really, a lot of that has served to fracture and divide many people in the body of Christ today. It's heartbreaking, but it's happening. There are so many rumors in or on the wind right now. This is going to happen. That's going to happen. This is going to happen. What are you looking at? What are you seeing? What are you focusing on? Because it can overcome you. It, it's like all of, this is, all of this is just distractions. It's distractions I wrote here that sometimes strip away that thin veneer that exists between the world, the flesh, and things that are spiritual. It just grates against us. It wears us down. So how should we be looking at what we're seeing today? Turn to 2 Corinthians 4.18, please. <clears throat> This is beautiful because the Apostle Paul, he's talking about a sharp contrast between that which we can see with our natural eyes versus which cannot be seen, which is spiritual. And he says, 2 Corinthians 4.18, while we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen, for the things which are not, <clears throat> for the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. You guys catch that? It, you know, it's not that we shouldn't pay attention to what's going on in front of us because we see stuff all the time happening around us. We can't put our head in the sand. Th these people that just say, I only look at spiritual things. Man, we're bombarded with non-spiritual things all day long. But can we see the spiritual things behind those things? Can we stay focused on them? The problem is, is, is that sometimes we begin to dwell on the things we're seeing in the natural around us, and it's almost as we look at them with a microscope or with a tube on our eyes, and all we see is that one thing in front of us. And when that happens, we lose perspective. And having a proper perspective in this moment and in this time and in this season is paramount because proper perspective can mean the difference between panic, defeat, confusion, or clarity, victory, and peace. You get to choose but having the proper perspective. So which way are we supposed to be looking? How do we figure this out? 
<coughs> I think the prophet Elisha understood this because Elijah was able to see what a servant was unable to see. I think the prophet Isaiah was able to look through, through this, even his naked eye, through a veil, God had opened his spiritual eyes. And, and I think this truth really exhibits this, this big truth that there is a reality behind the reality. I don't know how else to say it. But there is a reality behind the reality. When you're looking at someone who's yelling at you, who's screaming, who's in your face, what do you do? Do you first react in the natural? Well, how dare you talk to me like that? Let's step outside. Or do you sit there and go, man, Heavenly Father, Holy Spirit, what is going on in this person's heart? I tell you, if you'll just stop and take a breath in those moments, when with our natural eyes we're seeing something that's making us go, oh, maybe even grating us and rubbing us wrong, we stop for a moment and we look and we go, okay, Father. I had a neighbor years ago. I, we had just bought our property. Man, it's like 20 years ago. And I was clearing a trail around our perimeter of our property. I have this big fire break, and I was doing all that. And I hear yelling. I'm on this piece of equipment. I mean, I hear some serious yelling. So I stop and look, and here's this little man. <clears throat> I don't mean in, in stature, not in heart or anything, but he was yelling. And, and he was, like, screaming. So I finally shut the tractor off, and I said, what's going on? And he, he, he implied that I was making a move on his property and that I was making a dirt bike track to bring in dirt bikes to have a motocross races. I mean, he, he got into it, which I was. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. But so I got off, and the and, and first thing in me was, hey, dude, this is my property. Who are you? I didn't do that, but that's, what's, that's what welled up in my heart at first. It was like, this is my land. This is my territory. How dare you step on it? And he was. And I just said, hey, look, man, it's all right. I'm just making a fire break. And I could tell he was angry. And a couple hours later, we hear shooting and all kinds of crazy stuff. And I thought, man. Well, the next day or two, we got a piece of mail in our mailbox, which was his mail. And I told my wife, I said, man, I got to do this. So I rode, I had his name on it, drove up his driveway. And he comes out, and he's got his pistol comes out and he goes, what do you want? I said, I want to bring a mail, neighbor. It was in my mailbox. And something in him broke. And he just, tears just started shooting down his cheeks. I mean, almost straight out. He was so broken. And he said, I'm so sorry I yelled at you the other day, but I just found out that my daughter and my grandbaby had been murdered. He was just torqued. If I hadn't stopped and just said, Father, what are you doing? How often do we stop before we do something and just check it for a moment, saying, God, ooh, ooh, soul, flesh, settle down for a moment. Father, what are you doing? What's going on? This person is in my face. What is so broken in them? What an opportunity for God to bring you a word of knowledge, a word of wisdom, so one of those gifts of the Spirit to come in and to be able to minister to that person in a way that changes the trajectory of their life forever. The Apostle Paul spoke of this truth of opening the eyes 
of our understanding, opening the eyes of our heart. That's been my prayer for, man, the last month. Father, I want to know you better. I want to know more about you, not just knowledge. I want to experience you more. Father, I want to see what you're seeing. I want to be able to walk into a room and, and in a prophetic sense, be able to read what's going on in people's hearts so I know where you're working at so I can work there with you. That should be the cry of our heart. Turn to Ephesians chapter 1, verses 17 through 19. I hope this is making sense because my head's all fuzzy. All I hear up here is... Ephesians chapter 1, 17 through 19. This is the Apostle Paul. He's talking about how we could just have a greater, deeper, more understanding of God and who He is if we allow Him to open the eyes of our understanding, to open the eyes of our heart. But what does that mean? He says in verse 17, I keep asking that God, <clears throat> that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation. He's praying this. He's speaking this over the church in Ephesus. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. Now, there's a difference between knowing about and experiencing him, right? I've met so many people in my life that their knowledge of the word <clears throat> is amazing, but they've never met the author. They don't understand how this works. Now, they can tell you chapters and verses and break it down into the Old Testament, the New Testament, which is poetry and wisdom. I mean, they can break it all down, but at the end of the day, you realize that their life, there's no fruit. It's not judging. You just look at it and go, how sad that we can know all about but not know the author personally. He says, I pray, verse 18, critical prayer. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength. The Amplified puts verse 18 this way. <clears throat> and I pray that the eyes of your heart, the very center and core of your being, may be enlightened, flooded with the light by the Holy Spirit. That's powerful. Guys, without the opening of our eyes to spiritual things, we will walk in carnal blindness. We will walk in carnal darkness, unable to comprehend those deeper things of God. This should be a prayer in our heart all the time. Father, let me see what you're seeing. Open my eyes so that I can understand. Give me wisdom and revelation. Not from book knowledge. Reading the word is important because that reveals God's heart to us. But there's something supernatural happening here too. 1 Corinthians 2.14 says, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. There are deep things of God that are spiritually discerned. You can't learn them in a book. You can't read a 
go to the bookstore and check out a book and learn about them. You may learn about the peripherals, but to really, truly, deeply understand them, only God can give us that revelation. <clears throat> so, Paul goes on and he puts forth here, I believe, in verse 18 and 19, three, and I'm going to do this quickly, three powerful truths that will help us realize the meaning and the importance of having our eyes open, the eyes of our heart open, the eyes of our spiritual heart open to the things of God. And I'm going to add, do you know? That's for emphasis, okay? <clears throat> so do you know? It starts in verse, eight, verse uh, 18. Do you know the hope of his calling? Do you really know the hope of his calling? Do we really know the hope of his calling? When the eyes of our heart are open, when, when, when we allow his light to illuminate within us, we will begin to truly understand the greatness of this salvation that we have when we allow the Holy Spirit to come in and to illuminate our hearts with his light. Our hope, this very hope that we talk about, man, <clears throat> it's a hope of what is to come. It's a hope of how we can walk our lives out. And it speaks of the glory. Uh, this hope that we talk about speaks of a, the glory of the state that God's taking us into, a heavenly state. There'll come a day when all of this is gonna be gone. Thank you, Jesus. Pain and sickness and sorrow and cancer and all the ugliness will be gone. And listen, we're gonna go into a place where there will be no sin and there will be no corruption and there will, or anything that loves and makes a lie. You say, well, that sounds strange. Revelation 22:15 says this. Outside are the dogs, those who practice magic arts, the sexual immoral, the murderers, the idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. It's all going to be gone away with. There's coming a day when we're going to be walking with Jesus completely. Yes, the kingdom of heaven is broke in when Jesus put his foot on the earth, it began. But we live in the tension of the now and the not yet because it's not completely finished yet. When he comes back again and establishes self on the throne forever and ever, that's when it's completed. But right now we're living in this tension between the now and the not yet. John Wimber preached a lot on that. But I look forward to that glorious moment. I look forward to that moment when we get to really be face to face with Jesus. How many, how many long for that? Yeah, yeah. Paul tells us that we should look at things from an eternal perspective. Are we doing that today? How, how, how are we looking at things? Do we look at things through a lens of looking into eternity? 2 Corinthians 4.17, Paul says this, For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. With all that Paul had endured up to this time and all that he would yet endure, it was so important that he kept this eternal perspective of everything that was going on. That's the only way he was able to endure what was coming at him and what he knew he was going to, was he knew eternity. Heidi Baker, she's like, middle of the forest. They come up with guns and bazookas, and she's like, are you kidding me? You threaten me with heaven? Can you have, do we have that perspective, or do we freak out? Wait, 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 wait. 
You're threatening me with heaven? Are you kidding? You imagine the person standing there and they're like, uh, hmm, didn't think of that. I don't know. <laughs> Are you able, am I able, to look at my troubles and trials in life that we face from day to day, and can we call them light trouble? Sometimes people come in and they want to talk to me and they have a hangnail and it's the end of the world. I know they're young and it's hard, but it's, it's reality. Sometimes we get, again, so fixated on what's in front of us, we forget there's a reality behind the reality. I think with our hearts open to his light, we can. Number two, do you know the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people? I'm not sure if we fully understand just how precious we are to God. We may say, oh yeah, I do, but I, I don't know. He gave his life for us. We are the joy set before him. That's why he went to the cross. Do we understand how precious we are to our heavenly father? I think when we come to Christ, it's the beginning because something obviously happens that says, I need you, Jesus, and we come. Ephesians 1.11 says this, in him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. But the truth that we are his, his inheritance, we are God's inheritance, boggles the mind. I can't even get my head around that. I wrote here, this can only be because of his great love that he has towards us, and that in Christ we possess his righteousness. Righteousness is a gift from God, and he freely gave that gift to us. And because of the righteous gift that God gave us, his, his, his death and resurrection on the cross, death and resurrection, ascension, all of that attributes to the fact that right now we can stand in the presence of God because of righteousness. He made us righteous. Nothing we did, but he did for us. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Do we understand? Do we really understand how much of an inheritance we are to God? Pretty crazy when you think about it. Guys, when we're tempted to look down at ourselves or feel that the Lord has forgotten us or perhaps even forsaken us, let's just remember how much you're loved and how much you're loved by Him. You know, it's time, maybe it's a moment you just get on your knees and you say, Father, open the eyes of my heart that I might know how precious I am to you. Many of you in this room have suffered rejection at some point in your life. Am I right? Yeah. yeah. God will never reject you. He will never forsake you. He will always be there for you. Amen? Because yeah. he loves you. The world will tell you you're not good, you're not wanted, they don't, they'll label you. I, I grew up with that. I get it. But I know that God loves me more. And I know that in his presence, I am loved deeply. And you are too. The third thing is, we'll kind of wrap this up before I faint, pass out or something. 
fall asleep. I don't know. <clears throat> the third one Paul mentioned was, do you know, that's my emphasis, his incomparably great power for us who believe. Incomparably is a word. There's nothing you can compare it to. There is no measurement. There's no mark. There's nothing big enough, small enough, wide enough, deep enough to measure what this word means. But is it possible to underestimate his power? Is it possible? Yeah. I, I, I think when we look at our own circumstances and we silently deem them, oh, these are just too great to overcome. Or, or when we do believe yet there's a part of us where unbelief still rests, then we have underestimated his power. I can't tell you how many people I've come into. My father was a great example of this. He was so beat down by his own father. My grandfather was a mean man. He was so beat down by him physically and mentally that it spiritually crushed him. <clears throat> now, he came to Jesus. He was used in the prophetic incredibly uh, in, in incredibly powerful ways, but at the same time, he had a glass ceiling. He just couldn't get above. I'd say, Dad, you're a mighty man of valor. He'd say, no, son, I'm not. But you are. He could not. He could not buy into. There was still something even greater because of things that were spoken in his life, things that were said over him. It just absolutely crushed his spirit. He was never able to break free from that. It always kind of broke my heart because he loved God so deeply and so passionately, but yet he still couldn't get above that moment. And I think there's times when, when there's still parts of us that unbelief is still settled in. Down the corridor of your heart, every one of us has a corridor in our spiritual heart. <clears throat> there are rooms that I know the Holy Spirit has been knocking on for a long time. And the Holy Spirit wants to come in and he wants to clean up those areas. And his light wants to come in there and just bust it out. Burn out all that ugly stuff. Just take it out. But you've got to open the door. You've got to allow him to go down your heart. That's where secrets are dangerous. God knows. You think no one else knows. God knows. He wants to come in that room and bust all that up, flush it out, and let his light just illuminate that room and replace it with all the beauty and all of his glory. If we fail to understand, I wrote here, <coughs> if we fail to understand <coughs> the greatness of his power, that it's the very same power, that is that, oh man, I'm, I'm losing it here. What we fail to understand is that the very same power that raised Jesus from the dead is the very same power that is available to you and you and you and you and you, all of us. Yeah. Yeah. Ephesians 1 tells us, 19 through 21, and his incomparably great power for us who believe that power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead. You imagine that? That's the power he's put in us because we are in Christ. If you were born again, you've opened up your heart and Christ has come in and Christ is in you. Christ is in you and you are in him. So in Christ, we have the same power residing in us that raised Jesus from the dead. It's the same power that called Lazarus. Lazarus, come forth. It's the same power that raised Lazarus from the dead, residing in each and every one of us. Maybe you just need God to open up the eyes of your heart so you can see that truth. And seated him at the right hand in heavenly, place, heavenly realms, 
far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is invoked, not only in this present age, but also in the one to come. I think that covers everything. Yeah, I think it does. All of that power and authority resides inside of us. Do you know that? Do you know that? Are you underestimating his power? I wrote here, when we do not allow the Lord to open our hearts, then we will begin to lose sight of who he is and what he is able to do. There's this divine exchange. It's like as we constantly yield more of ourselves to following Jesus, God just reveals more and more to us. How many know that to be true? The longer you walk with Jesus, the more you dig in, the more you lean into, the more enlightenment and understanding comes to your heart. It's so true. We will also begin to minimize our own worth to Him. What happens, this is what happens when we stop remembering or forgetting just how great our salvation in Christ is. Man, in Him, in Him. Let's stand. We're going to worship for a moment. But I want to pray this prayer. Heavenly Father, give us the spirit of wisdom and revelation that we may see you and know you as you are. Father, I pray that you would open the eyes of our hearts. Thank you, Jesus. This is between you and Jesus. There's no need for an altar call unless you need, if you need healing, you want something deeper, you're welcome to come forward and we'd pray for you. But let's just lean into this. Let me hear you.